And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The show for Hyphen America. Well, actually, some people don't even need a hyphen, right? They just make a portmanteau for their specific identity. Can you please give me an example of a portmanteau? A mockumentary. Chillax. Mm-hmm. Brangelina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did I just date myself? <laughs> Ghanafornian. That last one is actually how our guest Elua Arthur chooses to identify. In, in the house, Ghana was in the house and it would always be in the house. Like they didn't speak English at home on purpose because they were like, you were going to retain this language. Mm. We ate the food. Christmas time would be full of Ghanaians from the neighborhood or the state coming to converge on our house. Just Ghanaians everywhere, everywhere. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Did you know this is only one part of all the things that the Mash Americans does? We have a website, an Instagram, a free weekly newsletter that brings you all the mashy news from the week. So sign up at mashupamericans.com slash newsletter and you can find all the other goodies at mashupamericans.com. Today, we're talking about death. Because at Mashup, we love to talk about all the big life milestones and, well, <laughs> death is kind of a big one. The, the biggest. <laughs> a Lua Arthur is a death doula, which is a specially trained person that assists individuals and their families with the process of dying. She's also the owner of Going With Grace, which is her end-of-life planning company. She helps out with all of the aspects of death, the before, during, and after parts. From financial planning to making an advanced care directive to figuring out how to transfer a car title after your loved one has died, I can speak from personal experience. No one wants to have to call up and cancel their dead loved one's magazine subscriptions. It's just, it's not a good scene. Nope. I would really appreciate a service for that. And, you know, I think the thing that was most surprising to me about this interview was just how incredibly joyful Elua is. She has this incredible magnetism to her where you just like you don't want to stop being in her presence her smile and energy is just the best best. and that's probably why she is so good at the work she does as a death doula i i don't think you could be any less full of life than she is and do that job you are so right elua is an attorney a ghanafornian born in ghana and raised all over settled now in california and one of four badass sisters in fact on another podcast we produced with our friends at hello sunshine we had a chance to share her sister story small world of mashups doing amazing things We know you were born in Ghana and you went to high school in Colorado Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other places in between. Mm -hmm. Why did your family move around so much? And what was it like going from a very, very black place Mm -hmm. to a very, very white state? So my family moved around a bunch because my parents were missionaries. Mm -hmm. They both found Jesus probably when I was like three or four. And so we then left to go spread Jesus to the westernized world because they needed it more than Ghana and the Africans did. So we were moving around so much all along that it never quite felt like going from a very black place to a very white place. There was just a bunch of places in between. Like we lived in Kenya for a while and the building that we lived in had a bunch of Indian folks on the floor. 
So there were brown people everywhere. There were different smells always coming up. There were some Kenyans, but it was also like Southeast Asians and Indians and us and people from all over living on that floor. And, you know, because of those early experiences walking around the earth spreading Jesus, I think I learned to try to judge people by how kind and loving and accepting and Jesus-like they were rather than what they looked like, which was a total mindfuck when we got to Colorado. Why? In what way? Well, in that everybody there was not everybody, but a lot of the kids that we went to school with were really rude and mean. (laughs) They were so mean. African booty scratcher. No. Yes. African booty scratcher. They asked me all the time. I mean, I understand that this comes from actual ignorance, but they'd ask me all the time if this were the first time I was wearing clothes or how I got to school or if we wiped our butt with leaves. And I was like, what? Wait, can I ask a question about that, which is that were you in Nairobi in Kenya or where? We were in Nairobi in Kenya. So you were in. But that's the thing is you were in big cities. Big cities. And then you get to Colorado to a not big city. Exactly. And that's actually... I mean, obviously, ignorant-ass people who, like, don't understand how cosmopolitan and worldly everyone else is, Um, but that that you're coming to a smaller place, too. Right, majorly. And so they have no concept of your experience living on a floor with Indians and Southeast Asians and Africans from all over Africa, right? Exactly. But also they're assholes. Also, Eighth grade assholes. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, eighth grade is tough anyway. But also, eighth grade is old enough to know better. Yeah, like, Those you aren't five-year-olds asking those questions or saying those things. No, we've had geography by eighth grade, right? Mm-hmm. Well, also, eighth grade, a five-year-old wouldn't even know to ask something like that because it's it's so deeply racist and based in something somebody taught you. Absolutely. Whereas maybe a five-year-old might, but like a four or three-year-old would just be like, I like you. What's your story? Yeah. Yeah. Does your skin taste like chocolate? Yeah. That seems less bad? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It's a thing, too. (laughs) I mean, you're like, I wish. It's delicious. You want to give it a whirl? (laughs) That's your pillow talk? (laughs) Gets him every time. Gets him every time. (laughs) Oh, guys. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. Um, So... <laughs> when you moved to Colorado in this situation, this situation where these children were little monsters running around, what was what was the thing that maintained your connection to Ghana? Was it the food? Was it um music? Was it clothing? Was it you know, the way that you m- interpreted your faith like what was the connective thread? I mean, we've heard from your sister that your mom was like in our house it's Ghana. Yep. Language spoken at home, food spoken, how she dressed. I mean, we had freedom of expression in our clothing. I always, I generally chose African prints, but still in Western styles, which I still do. By and large, I mean, not quite today. Well, But just so you're a doing a combo and the colors are like feeling. Yes, mm-hmm. very feeling. We're, we're using our fingers. Yeah, mm-hmm. doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the common thread was in in the house. Ghana was in the house and would always be in the house. Like, they didn't speak English at home on purpose because they were like, you were going to retain this language. Mm. We ate the food. Christmas time would be full of Ghanaians from the neighborhood or the state coming to converge on our house. Just Ghanaians everywhere. Everywhere. So we're going to talk about death. 
Great. And how how can we prepare for death? No, but how to make it more dignified and in loving and in and in a loving and holistic way. And so, how did death become your passion? Mm. How much time do we got? All of it. So much time, and also n- now understanding like you walking around bringing Jesus to the world. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's. I, I mean, it deepens the question for me. I'm, I'm, I. Is it something that you thought about a lot as a kid too, or was this, was this, uh, like, in midlife or later that you started to become really passionate about this? And a follow up. Uh-huh. Sorry, as you're talking. Where is Jesus now for you? <laughs> oh my God, no, they say he's up there. <laughs> I. So Jesus is where I was raised, mm-hmm. and then somewhere along the line, I start to really question. And have my own my doubts about some of the stories that I'd heard or had different interpretations than what I'd been told growing up, which was a battle because it's cultural, right? I mean, aside from just the religion, mm-hmm. it's like this is what we do. We go to church on Sunday and we also went on mm-hmm. like Wednesday and Friday and Sunday morning and Sunday night. Yet for me, I was like, but this isn't quite working for me. So how then do I how do I identify myself within this thing that is cultural and belief-based and everything else, which doesn't work for me. So Jesus is where we started. But as, you know, I grew and wandered through the planet, he went to go serve other purposes in my life. Yes. I started thinking about it a couple of times. I remember being a kid and hearing this Bible verse, he who believes in me shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. It's John three seventeen. John three oh, sixteen. Oh, that isn't that the one that's at the bottom of um, Forever Twenty One bags and like In and Out. Yes. <laughs> as a non <laughs> as a non Christian, that's like a big thing. You're like, yeah. oh my god, In and Out has Christian like secret Christian things on the bottom of the things. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Secret Christian. Yeah. And well, Forever Twenty One mm-hmm. also Christian Koreans. Mm-hmm. Super Christian. I mean, it's on the bottom of the bag, so everybody's carrying it around. And it's like the Bible verse of Christianity. Mm. And, you know, it's a thing that you're supposed to repeat or understand or know in order to become a born again Christian. But I thought, how do you not perish? How would one not Mm. perish? And as an adult, I've begun to look at how Mm. we use religion to create this idea of immortality. I think also based upon a fear of death is if you can look at what you will do and who you'll be in the afterlife, you can walk on streets of gold, you'll be reunited with everybody, with your father and the son and the Holy Ghost sitting at the right-hand side. Everything's perfect. Everything's golden. Then maybe it's not so scary to die. Death didn't, it wasn't a thing for me. You know, there are some folks that like love to visit the cemetery and are in the conversation all the time, but it wasn't part of my consciousness at all until... I met a woman on a bus in Cuba, really serendipitously, and she had uterine cancer. She was 36 years old. Her name was Jessica. She's German. And we just started chatting it up, primarily because she'd seen me earlier at the bus stop, and we talked about her tattoo, and then we get in the bus together, and we're talking. And I started to ask her questions about her disease and about a possible death from the disease, because she was only a couple years older than I was at the time. And in talking about it, I was like, why are we not talking about this? I asked if there was anybody that she could talk to about her disease and maybe dying from it. And her therapist, through her oncology program, was talking to her about living with disease. 
there was no conversation about dying from that disease. I thought mm. that was very strange. Mm-hmm. And I asked who she talked about, and she said no one. And I was like, well, you must want to talk about it. Like, it has to be on your mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had uterine cancer, I'd be wanting to talk about the fact that I might die from this. So we started talking about it. And it was a fun, interesting, lighthearted, deep, rich conversation where I think we both uncovered a lot about ourselves, also the other. I mean, we became total besties on this bus ride. But during that ride, too, I was looking around and I was like, God, everybody here is going to die. Everybody, everybody on the bus, the bus driver, the guy sitting next to me, all the people outside. What is this huge secret? Mm. It's like we've all conspired to hide this thing. But why? Mm. And it already felt like it held so much benefit for me in that moment that I thought, well, if we were all doing this more, we could learn more. We could gain more. So thus began my... Dance with death. So it seems relatively new, this idea of a death doula. Can you tell us just a little bit about what some of the things that you do are? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Practically, when people are healthy, I help people create a comprehensive end-of-life plan. That looks like wrapping up all of the affairs of their life. Where are your passwords? What do you want done with your stuff? That's when Advanced Director comes in. And also just a thorough decision-making and writing down plans. What do you want your funeral to look like? What do you want? What are your sentimental possessions? Because lawyers will cover the big ticket items in a will typically. But what about that ring that you wear every day? What do you want done with your wedding rings? Mm -hmm. Who do you want to have Mm -hmm. them? What's the story behind your wallet? You know, grandpa's glasses, that stuff. Um, And then that carries over a little bit through when people know what it is that they're going to be dying of. And I say that rather than terminal because, you know, we're all terminal. Mm -hmm. But so when there's a disease and it's pretty sure that that disease is the one that's going to kill them, I help family members um, and the people that really love and support the person who's dying create a death that feels as peaceful as possible. It is a very high bar. Yet, even being in the discussion about it creates avenues for greater awareness and understanding and deepening relationships. And then after a death, I help family members wrap up the affairs of their loved one's life. That service in particular is something that might be pretty unique to what I offer at Going With Grace, which is the name of my company, because I've seen a a massive need for it. It was part of where the, like the business structure kind of came about, was helping family members after a death get all of the stuff done because there's so much stuff to do. But also our world is this world, right, is is so not equipped for that. So that I, my experience, like when my mother-in-law died, in, there was a lot that was really well prepared, right, as a family, advanced directives, really talked about it. Like it was as healthy and peaceful as it could be when somebody was tragically dying. But then there's just like you getting bills a year later that are like, you still owe X and dollars for something and like all of that stuff, which is because there's there's no way to kind of undo your life yeah. in this place. Yeah. And it's so incredibly painful, particularly for like the widow or the widower who are still in that home and dealing with that loss. Yeah. It's it's a lot. The, we're just not equipped for it. Death dueling is not a new thing, yeah, right? Because as long as human beings have been alive, they've been dying. 
And as long as they've been dying, there have been people walking them through it, mm. either their immediate family members or somebody in the community. And in other cultures, it shows up bigger. Today, however, we have such complex lives. We live half of it online. You know, there are people that we'll never meet that feel close to us. There are subscriptions and bills and apartments and so much stuff. I mean, so much stuff that it's it's almost cruel that after somebody dies, the people that are left behind do have to go through it with a fine tooth comb and wrap it up. Mm-hmm. I remember my my older sister's husband died. This was after I'd already was pretty clear that I was going to be doing death work somehow. And he got sick and before long the disease was going to kill him and so I wrapped up went to New York spent some time with them. And after his death, I remember her sitting on the edge of the couch like just staring out the window. And I was about to go to Germany and get loved up on by my boyfriend because I needed somebody to take care of me for a while. And so I was trying to get it as clear as possible, like the plan. These are the things that you should do. And this is the order in which you should do them. Okay. I'm looking at her. She's not present. You know, she's in deep shock, like deep, deep, deep in the throes. I, even with my lawyer brain, was still very confused by the process of transferring title of his car into his nephew's name. I couldn't make it make sense. I thought if there was somebody I could call that would just have this answer that would help so much, we will pay them anything. Just somebody to help. Somebody. And nobody. Nobody. Then sitting on the phone with DMV, waiting for hours for somebody to pick up the phone, having to say over and over and over again that my brother-in-law had died was, it felt cruel. It felt cruel. Mm. I didn't want my sister to have to do it. I don't want other people to have to do it. I understand that there is a necessary component in that of grief, perhaps. But the way that it's set up right now and bureaucracy, the way that it's set up, I don't think we're taking very good care of each other. So I think, you know, in so much of this, it's it's so undesirable to have to like as a healthy person be like okay this is what i might do if my husband dies or like my husband and i tried to be really responsible like when like shortly after i gave birth or maybe it was just before my in my first pregnancy i was like we're going to make a will and we're going to do this those were just the very first steps right like i can't I, there's a piece of me that's like i can't i i literally my mind won't imagine that and so I, I wonder, is that, is that like a, you know, when we think about how, again, how our, our culture informs these kind of like big, big, the moments that define our lives, like these big spiritual moments, is that, is that an American thing that's like refusing to let me acknowledge that that is true? Um, or, just a, like, or just a human thing. Or just a human thing. Like, was there something about your Ghanaian-ness that led you to approach death differently or that or that like informs how you think about it or your anxiety or lack of anxiety around it? I think it's in my humanness. I'm generally very sensitive and like I don't want to see people suffer and what can I do to help type of person anyway, which might be I mean, it might be tied into being the second born female child 
Uh, so I, I'm not quite sure if it is in my Ghanaianess. I do know that lately it's been, I'm learning that there are parts of my family in Ghana that are very concerned that I might be playing around in the occult or something because I talk mm. about death constantly. And I think it goes back to that thing. About was, it a WhatsApp, about it. was it a WhatsApp message? <laughs> a guilt trippy WhatsApp message? Because I know all about those. <laughs> it was actually, yeah, it was an in-person conversation, which I was like, oh, huh. Well, and that's something. But it doesn't really change how I'm doing it because I, I know what I'm up to. And it, it just reminded me that there is this other thing that says don't talk about it at all because why why do you want to talk about it? Like my dad constantly was like, let's not talk about it. Finally got him to do his advanced planning. We have some documents written down. But for a long time, he was like, do not bring it up. When you go to Ghana, don't tell anybody what you do. They're going to think you're a witch. I was like, huh, fascinating. And then what? Two questions. One is that, you know, you, you work all across the country and you also work all around the world advising people on how to plan and, a, and approach death and, and, and like kind of give people agency in their death, which I think is one of the more really beautiful things and a way of, I think, kind of culturally and seismically changing our relationship around death so it doesn't feel so fatalistic. Like we have some agency in how we want our death to go in some way. Um, have you noticed a difference in when you're talking to all these different people about how different cultures, like, are you noticing themes um, and how different cultures talk about death or I don't know what kind of like musts there are or does it feel very, very individual? It feels pretty individual. Mm. I mean, there are some mm. cultural things that happen. And the homegirl, Caitlin Doherty, wrote this great book called From Here to Eternity, which looks at different cultural practices uh, around death and across the world. But it feels pretty individual because, you know, no matter where we grew up, we also still inhabit like a particular human expression that is really informed by other things. Yet my relationship to death doesn't look like, I'd say the average Ghanaian's relationship to death. I don't even mm -hmm. know, and I say this, maybe 50 Ghanafornians my relationship to death doesn't look like theirs either. Um, <laughs> right. Probably like 2,000 two, of us. Two of them are your family. So. <laughs> I really you, know, you know that very well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah. I think it's something that like we, we love to talk about mental health and like how different cultures and different mashups approach mental health. And I was just, you know, like when I think about like when I was really, really struggling with some with a specific challenge and I wanted somebody who got it. It was like the first filter I went through when I started seeking out a therapist. And this was like four, four years ago, five years ago, was that I wanted somebody Korean American. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted somebody for whom I did not have to explain what it meant to be who I am. Yeah. It, to, to like a certain degree. And so I can imagine like, you know, the work that you're doing is so. It's like it's beyond intimate, like a birth doula and death doula. Those two feel like the like the two most important kinds of like helpers in the world that like ha does your does your cultural background like does your how how does that inform like when you're with a client? Do you offer traditions that that you have had? Have you found that other other mashups that are similar to you are seeking you out? I have. I found that other mashups 
that are somewhat similar to me are also seeking to do this work so they can serve their communities, which I'm so down mm. for, so down for. Because oftentimes when I walk into the room of people in the end of life space, I'm the only brown person. And mm -hmm. I mean, let alone a mashup, like I'm the only person of color mostly. Well, not any end of life, but mostly like end of life care, support care. Mm -hmm. And it's challenging. I mean, most of my clients are white, North American, as far as I know, or they did some genealogy tests and found out they were some from someplace else. Are there one tenth, one bazillionth Cherokee? Yes, always. Oh God, always. Oh God, and they Africa. only want to talk about it. They want to talk about it so hard. <laughs> yeah, that teeny tiny bit. I, I love the fact that there are more people that are flocking to me to learn how to do this work. I've been teaching death doulas also, and a mm -hmm. lot. Of my students look like everything, which is so exciting because that wasn't the yeah. class that I sat in. And most definitely those are not the rooms that I sit in. I I mean, this is the total opposite of sitting with a mashup family, but I walked into a home in Escondido or someplace. And the as I walked in, the daughters who were in their 60s, their dad was about 94. They said, oh, just so you know, he's terribly racist. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Walk in the door. Yeah. Yeah. And before you know it, just spewing epithets, just all types of stuff. He was in a lot of wow. pain, physical pain as well. But just That's what know. I say when I'm in pain. Naturally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Naturally. Mm -hmm. And I I yeah, I did have to check in and say, huh, I don't know if I'm the right person to serve you at this moment. But mm -hmm. uh let's find ways in which we can support this experience you're having and then I'm gonna see my way out. I'll find you somebody else. Because, you know, it's interesting. There was in a community I'm a part of, there was just a, a very tragic thing that happened um, to a child. And because it's a Jewish-based community, it's not like a religious group, but it's a school. It's a Jewish school. The communications about it, to me, felt very clear, right? It was it made me very aware of the way we are all, even without being aware, we are so informed by these things absolutely and are kind of what we think death means is and means and the purpose and why and thus what life here on earth means mm -hmm. based on what death is or is not um, we started out talking about religion and it's you know it's I, I work very secularly right religion doesn't come in unless my client brings it in to the conversation uh, because I find that a lot of people when looking at the end of life, then begin to question their beliefs. Mm -hmm. hmm. Because if if it's a belief, that means it hasn't yet been tested and it will get tested very soon. And so when they know that that belief is going to get tested, I find that people then begin to wonder, well, what if? Could there be something else? I mean, shoot, even I'm a little concerned. <laughs> near the end of my life, I'm be like, shit, should I have gone to church more? Yeah. I don't think so. I mean, I want to walk those streets of gold, but... You never know. You never know. <laughs> can't with so much know. certainty say. No. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. We believe. We don't know. How, uh, you know, in, in going back to the question about faith and, um, you know, b b as somebody who approaches your work secularly, uh, uh, again, unless, like, your client brings in their faith... How do you help people walk the line between like the spiritual aspect of death and the physical aspect of death and then also just like the pure logistical 
aspect of death. Like in this conversation, we have talked about Jesus. We have talked about transferring Oprah magazine subscriptions. Like it's the whole gamut. Exactly. It's the whole gamut, which is part of the reason I love this work so much. But you'll find that all three can be present at all times in most discussions about death. When we are sitting and filling out an advanced planning document and talking about funeral and burial, and somebody says, oh, I really don't want to think of myself underground, that suggests to me that they believe that the body and the spirit are one, that they think that there'll be something still of them that's underground. And so we can dig into it there. Mm -hmm. It's a very practical conversation, which leads us directly into the spiritual. The two are inexorably linked. The three actually all are. When we are considering our practical things, it, we the next level is the emotional and then the next level after that is the spiritual, that all are available at any point in time. I take my cues from my clients about what it is that they actually need or want to get into and where they might need the most support and go there. Are you afraid of dying? Not really. I think it might be a fantastic adventure. I think the death actually might be this like ride of a lifetime that's a pun (laughs) 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 but um you know I have concerns about it I don't I'm a little concerned that I'll go before my time is up although I know that when my time is up it will be up but I want I want to do this work the best that I can and I want to spend my life spreading awareness around death and I fear or I'm concerned that I'll die before I really can impact a lot of people. Hmm. I also feel as though if I die as a result of a disease process, that my death is going to be a fantastical, fantastical. Like I'm going to talk about it nonstop. I'm going to use my death to do that thing that I am doing with my life. And if it's an accident or it happens very quickly, then perhaps that won't be possible. And then I'll just have to trust that I did the thing that I set out to do. Well, how do you envision your funeral? Oh, yeah. My funeral is going to be fun. I think it's going to be, I'd like it to be a party. I'd like it to happen probably around like 3 p.m., start around 3, so that people actually arrive around like 4. This is a real mashup. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mashup. Yeah, because Mm -hmm. you got to tell them, you got to tell them two to three hours ahead of time. Uh Come early. Yeah. mm -hmm. Come early. I'd like it to be outside. Um, In a park someplace, someplace with some trees. I'm imagining someplace in Topanga, if I'm still here, with my jewelry hanging all over the place, decorating it, bright Mm. colors and turquoise and corals and reds and yellows. I'd like some photos from my travels to be blown up and on like easels all over the place. I'd like there to be a lot of food, definitely alcohol, music. There's a few songs I can think of. I'd like people to share stories. I, I would like there to be a very short formal program But afterward, I'd like people just to be with each other and to be with what's left of me that they've still got. Do you want there to be a component of you where the actual, like, whatever is left of your physical self? Yeah. My body? Your body, you're cremated or whatever that is. Do you want that to be a part of it? I would like my body to be there in a hot pink and orange raw silk (laughs) shroud. I haven't found it yet. I'm still looking. Okay, okay. But I'm getting Mm -hmm, close to finding mm -hmm. it. So I'd like my body to be there. And then as the sun goes down, because like dusk is my favorite time of day, I'd like the body to leave and then everybody just get drunk and get wild, have a good old party. And then I go off to my green burial. Do you think about how you want 
people to grieve you. This is an obsession that I had like when I was a child. Oh, I would, definitely. I would write, imagine the eulogies that other people would give. Me too. And then, and then preemptively get angry that they weren't <laughs> saying them the right way. Wait, that's so funny that you would do that. Wait, this is such a good example of the difference between the two of us. Like whatever. I, I, we could probably say it's something with astrology, but I think it's just who we are. You got angry that they didn't say it the right way. And I would be weeping about how amazing I was with the things people said about me. <laughs> but I 100% would go to like through the whole you, like what people were saying about me. It was like a check in to see like, am I doing okay? Are you still using that? Do you still do it with any regularity or frequency? Not enough. I think a I, I don't think um, maybe I should rewrite my eulogies and, and get mad at my husband for not delivering it the right way. But I, <laughs> another thing that I would absolutely will do in the next couple of weeks is uh, no, but I do think a lot more about what what it will mean when I die and how I want. Not so much how I want to be remembered, because like uh, there's a piece of me that doesn't give a fuck, right? And then there's another piece of me that's like, I, m- m- the the older I get, and the more I think about death, and now having two children, I think much more. I have like a much more laser focus on what I want my life to be, mm-hmm. and like what what's what's worth it for me to do, mm-hmm. and feels like the investment that then I want to give. To my kids, I hope everybody is like understands that this is so joyful. And talking about death can do what you have said, which is to just like make you think about what your life means, yeah, and like what we want to do and how to how to make ourselves like invest in ourselves right now because we're all gonna die. Yeah, because otherwise, what is the point of spending time on this scary, possibly heavy, painful? Like otherwise, there's no other benefit to considering it. It's going to happen anyway. We can choose, we can choose if we're going to use it for life, to encourage life, or we can just be fearful and reach there anyway. Hmm. Pretty. I mean, there really are the two options. That's it. There's no other one. <laughs> You're going there anyway. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to go? Yeah. How are you going to go? Yeah. How are you going to go? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so how are you going to go? Well, I haven't thought about it in a while, but it seems clear that I'm going to have a pre-written eulogy and maybe yeah. I need to direct it before I die. Yeah. So that you it's can't not... be disappointed with your family members <laughs> in the afterlife. Oh, God. I mean, isn't that where we're supposed to let God, it go? The level of my bossiness surprises even me sometimes. I I can't. The <laughs> level of delight I feel at it is never ending. God. Not a like bossiness, <laughs> but at the fact that you are mad at your own, at people in your own imagination. Oh God, that's so, <sighs> so good. good. But I I did have the thought in thinking about how I might be mad about it after I'm dead. Is that maybe like in my family's ofrenda, I should self-select the pictures so that they don't put up one that I don't like. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You come back, you're like, this one? <laughs> Guys, I look so fat in this picture. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Um, what about okay, cool, you? cool, cool. Well, we talked about this a little earlier in the season, but how am I going to go? It hopefully, it's after a long life, so there's an opportunity 
to really get to celebrate and not for it to not to be tragic. Mm-hmm. So like some dancing, a lot of eating mm-hmm. and mariachis. mariachis. But also like I, I think people should cry because I think that's very healthy. Right. I'm going to hire um, the criers as backups just in case. Yeah. The, yeah, exactly. As you said. So some crying, <laughs> some mariachis, delicious snacks and like hopefully some funny stories about me and and my own bossiness (laughs) celebration and joy i think is really important and ritual i love jewish ritual i love it all i would like to know we would both like to know how you guys our listeners are going to celebrate the end of your life so let us know yo at mashupamericans.com I can't wait to hear what you all come back with. On our next episode, we will hear from Ai Jen Poo, who has dedicated her life to fighting for the rights of domestic workers. Because this whole part of our economy, which for shorthand we'll call it the care economy, this whole part of our lives, right, which has real economic implications like every part of our life, has been relegated to the realm of like women's responsibility Mm -hmm. and therefore made invisible, devalued, whatever. It's created this whole massive part of our life's experience that is just kind of chaotic. And that's a wrap on today's episode. Our producer is Kara Hart. The show is executive produced by me, Amy Choi, and her, Rebecca Lair, and the Mashup Americans Creative Studio. Shout out to Shelby Sandlin for handling all of the booking for the show. Our theme music is by DJ Rob Swift with additional music by Allot Moment. Bye. Ciao.